Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 100 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And our episode today is an interview with Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, I wanted to ask everyone to subscribe to and give our podcast a five-star rating so other compliance professionals can find the podcast. Well, since this is a milestone episode for me, 100 episodes or two years of podcasting behind me, uh, I thought it appropriate to welcome back to the podcast my good friend and professional colleague, Tom Fox. Everyone in compliance knows, admires Tom, uh, collaborates with Tom for all of his incredible work and commitment to compliance. First, uh, Tom maintains the preeminent FCPA and compliance blog. Second, uh, Tom has advanced his commitment in this area uh, as the compliance evangelist or guru, uh, creating and expanding his compliance podcast net- network, which offers compliance professionals a great variety of uh, compliance podcasts. Many of them are must-have for every lawyer and compliance professional interested in compliance. Uh, I'm also proud to participate with Tom and the group on his Everything Compliance podcast. Uh, I also just regularly subscribe to his podcast offerings, many of them, including I Love the Daily Compliance podcast, the FCPA Week in Review with uh, Jay Rosen, uh, Compliance in the Weeds with Matt Kelly. Um, The innovation one is really uh, terrific. Uh, and Tom knows that because I tell him that all the time. But on a, uh, there are many others that are great. Uh, on a professional and personal level, I will say this: Tom has been a frequent advisor to me. Um, he told me early on to get out of big law, commit to my blog, and start my own podcast, uh, which was similar advice I got on get out of big law from Judge Stanley Sporkin, the grandfather of the FCPA, who told me to get out. And I followed their advice and have been a much happier lawyer ever since. So thank you, Tom, for that as well. And with that intro, Tom, thanks for spending time with us today and welcome. And thank you for celebrating the uh, 100th episode. Well, Michael, I'm truly honored to to be here with you today. This has been uh, a great podcast series that you put on. You've really advanced the ball in not only podcasting for the compliance practitioner, but in thought leadership as well. You're Professional background is is different than certainly mine and many others in the compliance profession with your government service, uh, both uh, in the Department of Justice and on Capitol Hill, uh, your actual trial work, you a lawyer who's been to trial, a trial lawyer who's been to trial in an increasingly unfamiliar place for many trial lawyers. And then, of course, you, you work in compliance. So it's added uh, you've really added to the discussion and, and put together a, a package of perspectives that uh, certainly uh, I have found uh, very useful, helpful, and fascinating. Well, thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. Uh, we also share a common love for the Marx Brothers, uh, baseball, and even to compliance, but uh, most importantly, the Marx Brothers. Um, but I do, and we uh, hopefully will will have some chances in the future to collaborate in uh, more podcast series. But um, let's start, though, you know, I wanted to your compliance podcast network seems to be growing uh, exponentially. Uh, and I've seen a lot of you've had a lot of new additions. I also have to uh, compliment you just on the trekking through compliance this summer. 
which I think has been terrific because it reminds me of some of my the old Star Trek episodes, some of which I had even forgotten about and just how cool uh, they really were. But anyways, let's start with the Compliance Podcast Network, and maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about also the specific Star Trek uh, project. So, yes, thanks, Mike. Uh, I decided at the uh, uh, late last year to formalize the podcast I was doing uh, literally into the Compliance Podcast Network. And the Compliance Podcast Network is just that. It's a podcast network dedicated to themes generally related to compliance, but it's a little bit broader than that. Um, I'm trying to add two shows a month. So um, this month I added uh, Creativity and Compliance, a podcast with Ronnie Feldman. Ronnie's well-known in the compliance space in his uh, learning and training videos, but he's also a professional comedian by uh, background. So he's got a, a very different set of experiences than you and I, and he brings a very unique perspective. Uh, next week, uh, for instance, I uh, premiere yet another podcast with Sam Silverstein. Sam was one of the keynote speakers at the ECI 2019 Impact Conference, and Sam talks about accountability. Um, and he talks about it in a way that, frankly, I've not heard anyone else talk about. Uh, and Sam's message of accountability is absolutely essential and mandatory for the compliance practitioner. And so Sam and I are uh, starting a podcast together, which will, as I said, premiere uh, this this uh, next week. I've got upcoming podcasts that we're uh, under production with, Mike, that we'll be rolling out in August. And um, we could tease a little bit. Mike and I are going to uh, get together for uh, a podcast where we're going to share our love of compliance and the Marx Brothers uh, and we're uh, in production on that. So it's been a, a great journey, and I've gotten a lot of different uh, voices in compliance. Um, it all started really with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine with the Great Women in Compliance series, and they have done just a fabulous job on that series. Uh, Jonathan uh, Marks, with his Forensically Speaking podcast, has been a, a, a welcome addition. Uh, my own daughter, Paris Fox, has joined us with Modern Medium, where she brings a millennial's perspective to graphic arts design, art, and a wider variety of topics that the compliance practitioner should consider. So it's it's really been a lot of fun. I've really been able to uh, get people to develop podcasts based on their own background and their own passions. And it's, uh, it's certainly something that I'm going to continue to grow. I recently joined C-Suite Radio, and C-Suite Radio, Mike, is uh, one of the country's top business podcast platforms, and it's given me a, uh, a even larger platform to uh, talk about compliance, and I'm the, the voice of compliance for them. I have my own compliance corner uh, with them, and uh, it's been a, a real pleasure to work with them. They are uh, much broader than simply compliance. As I said, they're the one of the, the largest uh, business podcasting platforms, so I'm going to have lots of guests uh, from their other podcasts going forward. As you mentioned, one of my personal favorites is innovation and compliance. And I've been able to have a wide variety of innovators, innovators in products, innovators in services, uh, innovators in ideas, innovators in thought leadership, and uh, lots of ideas that are applicable to the compliance practitioner that you might not even think about. All the way from uh, I met two guys who started up a uh, recording, uh, online recording service that I use called Squadcast. Well, it turned out one of those guys was a former internal auditor. And um, wow. he saw the need for uh, a quality, auditable podcast trail. 
amazingly enough. So it's just wow. a it's been an interesting uh, exploration and trekking through compliance though. That you're absolutely right. That is uh I am a Star Trek original series aficionado having watched the first episode uh when it was released in September 1966. Uh I fell in love with it then. I'm still in love with it now and uh the original series of course is 79 episodes, so it was a fixed term of shows. And uh, since they're 90 days in the summer, I thought it would be appropriate to do it over the summer. I've had a ton of fun doing it. I've, uh, as I told my wife, we're going to have to rewatch every episode because this is, you know, preparation for my podcast. And uh, she rolled her eyes and perhaps rolls her eyes every night when we sit down to watch an episode or two. But uh, I sure love it. And I've enjoyed rewatching them, uh, thinking about the compliance and leadership uh, perspectives, um, thinking about shows that were shown in the 60s. And how different things are now. There were a couple of episodes that, frankly, Mike had horrific rape scenes that I had not remembered. Um, really? I just, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. of course, they didn't show anything, but that was a clear import. Uh, there was one where Captain Kirk um, attacked uh, Jan- uh, Janice Rand, Yeoman Rand, and her telling of that story was just gut wrenching in terms of thinking about the Me Too era and even Jeffrey Weinstein. Um, I just watched and posted today Patterns of Force, where uh, that was the one where they uh, found a planet which had emulated Nazi Germany. And if, if I remember not, that. Yeah, yeah. If that's not prescient to today, I, I really don't know what is. And then a private little war, which is about Vietnam and the escalation of force, uh, I thought was equally applicable to today. So I really enjoyed that series. It's it's really been a lot of fun. They're short, uh, seven to eight minutes, a story synopsis, a fun fact or two, and then uh, the compliance or leadership lessons learned. So uh, if you haven't checked it out, please check it out. I'm also, Mike, uh, extraordinarily pleased to be a part of Sarah Haddon's uh, new effort as the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights. I cross-post my entire uh, catalog of podcasts from the Compliance Podcast Network on her site. And so that's given me another, I think Sarah has 25 or 30,000 daily uh, subscribers. So it's yet another platform I post now on 12 separate platforms. So I have the widest reach uh, there is. There's a, a way for you to d- download or listen to my podcast. Uh, some of the platforms I post on are iTunes, Megaphone, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and a wide variety of others. So uh, if you're having trouble finding me, just let me know because I can surely point you in the right direction. Uh, and it's really been just a ton of fun for me to, to do it. People enjoy talking about uh, their passion and their profession, uh, just as you and I do. And I tell people when I interview them, it's a virtual cup of coffee with Tom. Uh, What do you do and why do you love it? And everybody enjoys talking about that. Well, it's been uh, terrific. I I have to commend you. I forgot about the, I have listened to the uh, Women in Compliance and uh, that is terrific. Um, Mary Shirley, uh, and then you had on people that I know from the Houston area. But um, also, Tom, just take a moment, um, and I, I, I want to promote this because the Greater Houston Business Ethics Roundtable, I think, is perhaps one of the best models for, let's say, a local compliance group. And I know you serve as the president on that. Um, and can you just Give us a feel for that in terms of what you're doing there, because I think that's a really good model for other cities or other regions of compliance officers who want to try to get together and share ideas. 
Sure. The Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable, or Gerber, is the most senior local compliance and ethics organization in the United States. Of course, there are other uh, large professional organizations, ECI, uh, Ethosphere, etc. There are also uh, business and ethics schools at universities and colleges that have been around. But this is a local organization in the greater uh, Houston area dedicated to compliance and ethics. It's open to all who want to participate in that discussion. It was founded uh, 22 years ago now by Dr. Betty Steed. And what she saw was a need for discussion around business ethics based upon something you referenced, Mike, which was the 1992 U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. And in uh, 1995, uh, she founded our organization. It's been around since that time. Uh, We bring local business and uh, compliance and ethics professionals together for uh, symposia. You recently spoke at our members only uh, workshop. We have quarterly meetings. We have social events. And probably the thing I'm most proud of, Mike, is, uh, and frankly, the thing that drew it, me to Gerber was the following. We give away five scholarships annually to local graduate students in business schools in Houston area universities uh, around business and ethics. So uh, students, universities submit uh, ap- uh, applicants, and we make five selections. That's been going on at least, I joined, I think, in 08. So it's been going on at least since then. We've given away hundreds of thousands of dollars in scholarship because we we thought, uh, and the founders and, and uh, other presidents before me, thought it was important that we invest in the next generation of business and compliance and ethics professionals uh, in our city, and we've done that, and we continue to do that. We recently had our annual award, uh, which we give out uh, each year. This year, I went to Jim Deloach. Jim is at Protivity, and Jim is literally one of the country's leading experts on internal controls, and his internal controls around Sarbanes-Oxley, around ethics and compliance, uh, and that discussion. He's an author of numerous books, articles, he is perhaps the most gracious gentleman I have met in uh, the compliance realm, um, and uh, he was well-deserved of the award. But uh, Jonathan uh, Marks gave a fabulous keynote speech there. Uh, Jim's thoughts about his professional life and the challenges that he has faced, which are numerous, uh, from a disability from childhood that he has overcome to achieve what he has done just awe-inspiring, and uh, it's a great organization, and it's it's designed, as you said, for the local folks. And if there's anyone out there that uh, would like to talk to me about it, I'm certainly happy to do it. We're not affiliated with any other organization. Um, you can have a, a local organization that's self-funded, self-fulfilling, and keep going. So uh, it's been a great uh, uh, ride for me. I've been an officer now for, I guess, four years, five years I've been the speaker chair and I've got in the middle of a two-year term as as president. And it's really a great organization. You've spoken several times. You're extraordinarily well-received when uh, you do come to talk here, as as are really all of the speakers. So we're looking forward to a continued run. And it's been a, a, a great professional opportunity for me. But once again, the educational component of Gerber uh, cannot be underestimated. Well, it's look, I and it's interesting because I just think Houston is a great for whatever reason, uh, you know, how it's become a leader in compliance. But the ideas and the programs that are in Houston 
obviously with oil and gas uh, there, you, you know, there, there just has been great thought leadership that's come out of there. And uh, I always tell people that it's a it, I, I spent a lot of time early on in my compliance career down there. And I learned by going to a lot of conferences and meeting people down there. There used to be more oil and gas conferences uh, when, you know, oil was at $100 a barrel. And um, and uh, I just found it incredible, the passion, the, the talent of people in Houston. And it's interesting because you see people from Houston sort of spread out. Eventually they get, you know, an offer to leave Houston, uh, you know, to become, let's say, a chief compliance officer somewhere. And you see Houston's influence everywhere in the compliance profession. It's really incredible. So, um, well, let's let's go to some compliance issues now, Tom. And and obviously the biggest issue has been all the guidance that has come out from the Justice Department now from OFAC. And um, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about it and the value of it. Um, it, you know, does it set a new standard? Is it a minimum? Is it a maximum? Uh, you know, what is the value of the guidance that's come out? And uh, I wanted to sort of get your perspective on from the compliance professional. What do you see compliance people doing with this? And, you know, are there any pitfalls that you see in, in using the guidance? I, I don't see any downside, but I don't know what your, what your perspective is. So, Mike, I, I see absolutely no downside, frankly, ever by ingesting anything the Department of Justice uh, criminal uh, 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 division says or the fraud section says or the FCPA unit says into your compliance program. And I always, let me emphasize, always welcome their public commentary. So the evaluation of corporate compliance programs 2019 guidance was one more uh, piece of information, and, and whether you want to go back to the sentencing guidelines, whether you want to look at the deferred prosecution agreements, uh, the Morford memo, uh, any of the memos that came out in the last decade, uh, whether you look at the opinion releases, whether you move forward to the 2012 FCPA resource, whether you look at the uh, pronouncements by uh, Leslie Caldwell when she was with the department, uh, which led to the 2016 pilot program. We had the 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was released, uh, leading to the um, 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein, and then uh, a couple of uh, 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 amendments or changes or modifications to that corporate enforcement policy uh, over the uh, past uh, now 18 months. A couple announced by Brian Benchkowski. We, of course, had the Benchkowski memo from October 2018. Um, so um, lots of information has come out, and the 2019 guidance is is part of that uh, guidance that uh, should be uh, you know, considered by the compliance practitioner. You have written uh, really articulately and passionately, Mike, about the, the OFAC guidance, and so I've really leaned on my interpretation of the OFAC guidance in large part based upon what you've said, but the thing that struck me the most about the OFAC uh, compliance framework guidance for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner is OFAC's uh, focus on non-sales side third parties. So in the FCPA world or the anti-corruption compliance practitioner's world, we take a look at um, third parties on the sales side of things. But OFAC has a little bit different focus and certainly a broader remit. And they said you need to focus on your 
customer base. You need to focus on your vendor base. You need to focus on third parties who are involved with your organization that, that are not on the sales side. And uh, I believe you were at the uh, the presentation that Bob Ward made at the Gerber 2019 yep. workshop where he said the three most important things in OFAC or export control compliance are the following, screen, screen, and then screen some more. Right. And that, that's a message that I think the anti-corruption compliance practitioner needs to take to heart. We saw several bribery schemes uh, in reported FCPA cases, really starting with uh, uh, Petrobras, where the customer was in on the bribery scheme, not the individual foreign government official or state-owned enterprise employee, but the customer itself was in on the bribery scheme. And that's a that's a different quality of bribery than bags of cash across the border to pay off somebody to get a contract. And how does the anti-corruption compliance practitioner or the chief compliance officer sitting in Houston, Texas, sitting in San Diego, California, or anywhere else in the United States, how do they evaluate whether or not a contract has mechanisms built into it they are going to self-fund a bribe? Uh, It's extraordinarily difficult. So you've got to have the processes in place. You've got to have not only policies and procedures to help detect those sorts of things and prevent them, but then you have to have uh, internal controls, safeguards, uh, that when a red flag does pop up, its uh, information gets to the compliance function, and the compliance function can then investigate, audit, or do an appropriate step, uh, perhaps leading to remediation. But the bribery schemes have become more sophisticated. The bad guys uh, know what they're doing. They know who's watching, and they know how companies are watching them. So they're moving to utilization of, of actual contract pricing mechanisms to self-fund bribes as opposed to stealing it from the corporation, whether that be fraudulent expense accounts, calling it marketing expenses, calling it a charitable donation. So um, as um, compliant, excuse me, as the bribery schemes become more sophisticated, I, that's where I really appreciated the OFAC's compliant, OFAC compliance framework uh, informing the anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance practitioner. You need to look at your vendors. You need to look at your customers. Is there... This is beyond an analysis of have they ever done anything wrong. Uh, this is an analysis literally of a tra- transaction by transaction analysis, just as you would have to do if you were doing export control uh, compliance, just as Bob Ward has to do every day. Is this uh, shipment, is this sale, is this uh, transfer of goods either going to a prohibited party or a banned country, or is there potential that it could be shipped through uh, a third party or intermediary uh, country that would equally get us in trouble. And that's really not something that a corruption compliance practitioner has thought about. So the OFAC guidance, at least from my perspective, has been important uh, to bring that really to the forefront of anti-corruption compliance. Yeah, I, I agree completely, Tom. That was, I mean, in- well-articulated sort of view of current risks, particularly in anti-bribery. And the other thing that OFAC has done is now in your supply chain, uh, and I'm hearing more and more about supply chain audits where vendors are coming and demanding audits of various uh, aspects of your program, um, is sourcing. Now there's where do you source your raw materials from? And OFAC is now concerned about are you sourcing your materials 
that let's say may have originated in Iran or may have originated in North Korea or Cuba or wherever, or from a prohibited person. And I have to say that in all candor, people were not um, you know, looking at their supply chain in that way. So now that's opened up a whole new area. And for anti-corruption purposes, we may not, they're not in a representational type role. So we weren't spending as much time. We were doing rep reputational type screening. But now OFAC has raised the game in terms of your supply chain. And, and I, I know, by the way, you know, Houston also has that, you know, very popular yearly uh, supply chain conference. But I would think this would be something that they they should take a look at as as a big a big risk in the supply chain area. You know, Mike, you're absolutely right, and that's a great example of the following: uh, supply chain compliance began with companies trying to understand who was in their supply chain because they wanted to look at the quality of supplies they were getting. Were the uh, met the uh, products meeting minimum standards for manufacture. So it really be began as a business requirement in the supply chain that evolved to uh, things like conflicts minerals and right. uh, other areas where uh, uh, the government began to become concerned on where a product came from, separate and apart from the safety or quality issues. That put supply chains uh, on notice and that they had to then make a, a further inquiry to understand where their uh, raw materials and base products were coming from. So that the supply chain compliance professional is, Mike, in many ways much more well-suited to take on these new inquiries that OFAC and, and indeed the Department of Justice are mandating to, to know who you are doing business with. And right. Um, right. it's been it's different, perhaps, than our type of compliance, the anti-corruption compliance, because our compliance was largely led by the government uh, enforcing the FCPA in the last decade and uh, requiring companies to put compliance programs in place as a response to not only a legal requirement, but then enforcement actions based upon violations of that law, whereas in the supply chain, the supply chain compliance professional grew up. Uh, it actually began in the environmental movement uh, where uh, companies wanted to know uh, uh, whether they were uh, putting products in or raw materials, rather, into their products, which would either harm humans or damage the environment. So they came about compliance in a little bit different perspective, you could even say, well, certainly it was a business perspective, but it was perhaps bro even broader or a little bit different than a business perspective. Whereas when you and I talk FCPA or anti-corruption compliance, we really talk about in the last decade where the government was leading the discussion on um, what constituted a best practice compliance program through the various pronouncements, uh, really up to uh, April of this year when Brian Bichkowski announced the uh, 2019 guidance. So whereas in anti-corruption compliance, the government has led the discussion in many ways. In supply chain compliance, it's been the companies that have led the discussion. And they, I think, are, are well-informed to uh, – or well-suited, I should say, to lead or inform the anti-corruption compliance practitioner in how do you look at your supply chain. How do you know what's in your supply chain, who's in your supply chain, what they're supplying to you, and where did it come from? 
And and I think this has been and there was this has been even underscored even more with the human slave the slavery problem, human trafficking, uh, in terms of what do you have in your supply chain in terms of uh, you know maybe legal liability, but at least severe uh, reputational risks. And you have what the California Transparency Act. Uh, and we have the, the Slavery Act over in the UK. And so I think this raises, you know, all of this is coming together. And maybe I think what we're going to see is sort of a, a new push on the supply chain side, because we've spent so much time on the distribution side, you know, for FCPA purposes, that we may be coming full circle back to the supply chain and all the risks uh, that occur there. But hey, one other point, Tom, uh, and I, just to give our listeners a little bit of news, um, you and I talked recently. Um, we still, and I still love and still consider a great, the, probably the best resource, the FCPA guidance from 2012. And it's amazing how you can read it, and it still applies today in terms of valuable lessons there. Um, first off, what do you see? Uh, does it still have value to the compliance professional? And what do you expect to see down the road with regard to the guidance? The FCPA, so I, the FCPA guidance. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. It was uh, just a fabulous resource in 2012, and it's a fabulous resource now. And let me mention the cost in 2012, and then now let me mention the cost now, free, at no charge. Right. right. By the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. The reason it was so significant in 2012 initially was it was a compendium of all things FCPA up until that point. So it gave us the law. It gave us key enforcement actions. It gave us key opinion release procedures, uh, opinion releases, rather. It gave us hypotheticals based upon uh, cases, based upon uh, opinion releases, and based upon some some de declinations that we were unaware of that the department had issued prior to that time. Um, you know, having the FCPA annotated in one place was a great resource. Um, right. And then, of course, it articulated formally the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, which has become really the, the universal standard by which uh, compliance programs are, are measured across the globe. And with uh, enough detail yet written broadly enough that allowed uh, a compliance practitioner or, or literally a layman to read it, understand what it what it required or suggested, and then uh, the flexibility to put such a program in place for your organization based upon your risks. So um, it was a, a fabulous resource then. The 10 hallmarks still stand up today. Uh, obviously, there have been more enforcement actions. There have been more opinion releases. There have been uh, a, a plethora of declinations. Uh, since that time that are not in uh, in the 2012 guidance. So if the government chose to update it, that would be a welcome um, addition. And then the uh, uh, updates, upgrades, and increases in sophistication and compliance programs since that time, um, I think would be a, a welcome addition as well. Certainly if we looked at the 2019 guidance, uh, we would, uh, at least I would focus on a couple of different areas that were not talked about as much in 2012. And one was one is culture. Uh, the Department of Justice has recognized that it, it's really all about culture. 
starting at the top all the way down, but how do you measure it? How do you assess it? How do you improve it? How do you use culture to prevent a, a violation? How do you use culture to detect a violation? So culture is key. And then now uh, with the uh, 2017 evaluation, we had the first public announcement by the Department of Justice around the importance of root cause analysis. And root cause analysis has, has joined internal investigations, auditing, and other types of mechanisms by which a company can assess either a problem or a violation that's occurred and equally importantly determine what can be done to fix it or remediate it. And as the final step in the 2019 guidance, this uh, document really mandated it's not simply looking at the problem. It's not simply finding out the problem. It's not simply doing ongoing uh, monitoring on a continuous basis. It's how did you use that information to improve your compliance program? So what steps did you take to remedy these deficiencies that may have come up in any of these investigative techniques that uh, have been around for some time? Well, that that's absolutely true. I agree with you, Tom, on in terms of uh, what the, root, the importance of the root cause analysis, the culture, and all the other things. So, um, hey, I wanted to turn to another point, and that is, I mean, I, I am a big fan of your innovation and compliance podcast. It's uh, something that I sort of regularly follow just to hear new ideas. And um, I also wanted to mention briefly, I think the NAVEX Global Recent Benchmarking Definitive Guide on Compliance was really critical because in it, what they found, and, and this turn leads to my question, they found that the two most significant factors for effective compliance uh, programs was senior management buy-in and nowadays automation. And so then that raises the technology issue. And we always hear about automation, blockchain, you know, artificial intelligence, data analytics, machine learning. And there are a lot of great ideas out there. But I also wonder um, for people who are just getting into automation or data analytics, um, how do you approach all the technologies that are out there? You know, blockchain is going to revolutionize compliance in my mind, particularly supply chain compliance as well. Um, but, um, you know, what's available, what's cost effective for people who are in the trenches and, and how do you approach that? So what's, what's your sense of that, Tom? Because this is to me, one of the biggest issues for compliance down the road here. Sure, Mike. Uh, I absolutely agree. I think this is going to be the cutting edge of compliance going forward, certainly in the next five years and, and perhaps even beyond it is, what data is available to you? How can you access that data? How can you find the patterns in raked leaves? And then how can you deliver a, a compliance solution or remediation and or use that data on an ongoing continuous upgrade basis up, uh, to upgrade your compliance program? If uh, the, the I would suggest the place to start is look inside your own organization. What information do you have that's available to you that uh, you're not uh, – either accessing because it's siloed, uh, you're not accessing because you don't have access to it, or you're not accessing because you don't know how to access it. If you can begin by identifying the types of information that are within your organization, part of that is through a gap analysis, looking at the internal controls you have in place, uh, uh, mapped up against the um, 
map your COSO-based internal controls against the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. will tell you any gaps, but it'll also tell you where your information is. And then from there, sort of take that information. So do you have access to your gift travel and entertainment spend as uh, of uh, your high-risk sales uh, force? So I can't remember the first time I heard you say that gifts, travel, and entertainment are the lowest-hanging FCPA fruit, but how many compliance practitioners have access to that uh, across their organization or at least with uh, employees working in high-risk jurisdictions? Take a look at that. Uh, analyze that information to see if there are any um, uh, anomalies or unusual spins uh, and then move move forward from there. But literally in a wide variety of other areas, we'll take a look at the internal information that's within your organization. So have you looked at the uh, spend uh, and the processes and procedures around your sales cycle. Um, so a sales cycle is usually something along the following, Mike. You have a salesman uh, who makes a call on a customer. Uh, they identify a customer. They identify an opportunity. Um, that may lead to um, a a being put on the bid list. So once you're on the bid list, that means you get a request for proposal, and you respond to your request for proposal. If you are the successful bidder on that request for proposal, then you negotiate a contract. Um, if you win that contract or if you're successful, rather, in your negotiation and you sign a contract and you begin to work for that customer, uh, you have to manage that contract after it's signed. Well, each one of those steps has a compliance component. Um, you have to look at your GTE spend at every step. You have to look at the my comments earlier about when the customer's in on the bribery scheme that's where looking at the contract price, the uh, discount given, any rebates given, as a compliance practitioner, you may not have an appreciation of the value of a contract price, but you, you can bet your business guys do, and you can bet your EVP around sales does. So has if there's a discount given, has it been approved by an appropriate level of management? Um, that's not the compliance management. That's uh, sales management, business development management. Um, then uh, when you get to the contract, who are your third parties that are going to help you supply goods or services for this contract? Have they all been properly vetted? Uh, have they gone through your um, both supply chain vetting and your compliance vetting? Have you used any agents in this process? If so, have they gone through the vetting? What's their commission rate? What's their uh, uh, percentage commission if they're on percentage? Are you using distributors? Once again, the same series of questions. Um, that's just up to the point where the contract signed. Now the contract signed, and you have to manage it certainly from the commercial perspective, but you also have to manage it from the compliance perspective. Each one of the third parties I've mentioned, they have to be managed, and you have to manage your customer. What if your customer is a foreign government and they want to come to the United States to view your home office or your manufacturing facilities? Do you have a program in place um, that uh, qualifies under the FCPA? So um, the uh, there's a large number of – and those are just – data points that every company has. But my question for the compliance practitioner would be, do you have access to those data points? Do you have visibility into those data points? Um, if not, how do you get visibility? Uh, is there a uh, technological solution or an automated platform that would give you visibility across those? Uh, my suspicion is that you probably got a contract management system in place from the business perspective. Do you have access to that? So um, there's a lot of information that you have within your organization, 
and things you can do from a technological perspective. Mike, before we've even gotten to more, some of the more exotic things or cutting edge things um, uh, that we can we can move to, but certainly getting a handle on what your company is doing and how it's doing it from the compliance perspective is uh, absolutely uh, mandatory going forward. Oh, that was uh, that that is so true because people uh, they feel overwhelmed with the amount of data they have just within their company. And so what I think you're saying is to prioritize that uh, look and, you know, try to get access to everything that you, that you have. So, so well, Tom, Mike, let me almost, just say, oh, yeah, let me just say, yeah, these, um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. What I just articulated is called quote to cash. Every company has a quote to cash policy. Every company has a procure to pay policy on their supply chain side. Get out of your office, walk down the hall and talk to the head of sales Walk down the, uh, to talk to the head of your supply chain. I guarantee you they have a process in place, and you should have visibility into that. Absolutely. That's called uh, what Donna Bohm calls line of sight, and you need to have visibility across the organization. So, well, listen, we're, uh, this has been great. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, Tom. I, I have to leave. We have to leave with one last question because I always ask this of you in terms of your perspective and the podcast network and all your writing and speaking and participation in the profession. But, you know, how do you see things going right now for the compliance profession? Is it still a, a hot profession to you? And what do you see as the future and, and the challenges facing uh, CCOs and compliance officers? I know that's a, a broad question, but just to take your temperature on what you see out there and where do you think things are going? So Mike, uh, you and I have both been in this profession, uh, I guess me since 07, you're from around that same time. And it has been an incredible growth uh, and maturation of the compliance profession since that time. All elements of the compliance profession have matured. Uh, the government's expectations have matured. Corporations have matured. Vendors have matured. Suppliers have uh, matured, uh, customers have matured, and compliance, I think, now is properly seen as a business process. And as a business process, uh, I think it's not only more important now for corporations, but it is more valuable for corporations. It's more important now because of the amplification of social media, uh, whether it's uh, companies protesting their employers who are selling mattresses to the detention camps on the border or uh, up to a, a Boeing uh, with uh, the problems they're having around the 737 MAX. Those are all compliance issues. And these 10 years ago, 12 years ago, this was not something you and I would have considered a compliance issue. So um, compliance has become even more important. It is a mandatory part of every business now and have a compliance business process in place, which will be able to respond quickly and efficiently to not violations of law, but uh, areas that could cause a um, reputational hit. Uh, and that really leads to what I think is the most significant uh, evolution or change in compliance now, which is that properly uh, engaged, effective compliance makes corporations run more efficiently and uh, more profitably. And so I'm going to start to talk about that and write about that and demonstrate that uh, it's not that good compliance is good for business. It is that good compliance actually makes your business better 
and it makes you more profitable. And it turns out there are a lot of stories out there where companies have done just that, implemented a compliance solution, perhaps as a part of an FCPA settlement, uh, perhaps as a part of a fraud uh, risk analysis, uh, perhaps, as uh, as we mentioned earlier, as a part of a supply chain uh, uh, issue around sourcing. But that compliance solution actually makes made the process more efficient, and it made the company more money. It didn't just save the company money. It actually made them money. So when, uh, when you start having that sort of discussion, compliance moves from a cost center to a business enhancer and business multiplier, and that's going to put uh, more emphasis on compliance going forward. And the compliance practitioner is going to need, a, uh, frankly, another set of skills beyond what you and I learn in law school or what law schools are teaching simply about the rote rules and regulations of compliance, largely based on the FCPA. So it's an exciting time to be a compliance practitioner. The um, the work that organizations like Gerber do in terms of donating uh, money and and uh, for scholarships for business and ethics professionals, universities that are putting this forward, not only uh, as a way for academic study but actually in academic teachings, I think are going to lead this discussion. And you know, I hate to sound like an old guy, but the the up-and-coming generations uh, that are moving into the workforce, the millennials and uh, iGeners, um, they're demanding it, and they want to work for companies that do business ethically and in compliance. And if the company doesn't, uh, when we see, saw the example of the Wayfarer mattresses all the way to Google, that um, uh, they're not going to uh, stand for it, and they're going to tell their employers, we don't want to work on this contract. We don't want to deliver this product. Uh, and when you have your employees saying that in a public way, you can bet your bottom dollar your stock price is going to take a hit. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, Tom, it's been fascinating as always. Uh, you know, I always uh, get a lot of reaction from we get a lot of listeners when you uh, appear on the show. So I appreciate that. Um, but if people, uh, again, want to reach you, the best way to reach you, I mean, there's all your podcasts and whatnot, but the best way to directly reach you. Uh, is what? Uh, my email, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Always happy to chat. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. Thank you again. I appreciate all your support through the years, your great work, and uh, just keep it up is all I can tell you. And thanks for everything you do. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Both Health Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to ethics, ethical compliance programs at our website, www.bocoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Action Fund Compliance, and our podcast here. You can always contact me at my email address, mbolkoff at bocoflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve
Thank you.